0: Be weary of the online experts who have today's fix with today's hot button thing to tell you everything in sales and marketing has changed. You need today's coolest tool, toy, technique, or you're a dinosaur. That's a load of crap being perpetuated by people that
1: have an agenda and something they're trying to sell you.
2: Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co founder of the industrial marketing agency Gorilla 76. Cold calling is dead. Social selling is the new thing. Actually, social selling is dead. What you need to do is account based marketing. Or maybe on second thought, account based marketing is actually dead. And what you need to do is get onto Clubhouse. The world of sales and marketing seems to be a revolving door of buzzwords, tools, and technology, accompanied by dramatic claims by so-called experts about what thing you need to be doing if you're going to survive out there. But as today's guest will tell you, the common thread among successful sales professionals isn't tied up in any piece of software or tactical flavor of the day. What remains timeless, evergreen, and essential are the fundamentals, Focusing on the right types of customers, intentionally selecting target accounts, developing a deep understanding of what matters to the human beings inside of those organizations, asking the right questions, creating value in the sales process, leading the way to a solution that actually makes sense for the buyer. These core fundamentals of selling never went away. And regardless of your favorite tools and tactics, you're unlikely to succeed if you can't get those things right. I am super excited to introduce today's guest because he's someone who gets this stuff. He's written best-selling books on these topics and influenced me, my agency, and my clients in significant ways over the years. So on that note, let me introduce Mike Weinberg. Mike Weinberg is a consultant, sales coach, speaker, and author on a mission to simplify sales. His specialties are new business development and sales management, and his passion is helping companies and salespeople win more new sales. Before launching his own firm, Mike was the top producing salesperson in three companies. Forbes named Mike a top sales influencer and other publications list him as the number one sales expert to follow on Twitter. Mike has spoken and consulted on five continents and is the author of three Amazon number one bestsellers. New Sales Simplified is a seven-year bestseller and has been named the number three most highly rated sales book of all time. Mike's second book, Sales Management Simplified, has been called arguably the best book ever written on sales management and named by Inc Magazine and HubSpot as the number one book every sales leader should read. And his latest book, Sales Truth, became a number one bestseller the first week it hit the market. Mike is a native New Yorker who's lived in St. Louis for 25 years, he has three young adult children, and has been told that his wife, Katie, is still the best proof that he can really sell. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey neighbor, thanks for having me, Joe. Been looking forward to this for a long time. Absolutely, you know it's funny. I I was in a client meeting like four years ago, probably, and you know I had your book up on screen. We were talking about d- doing positioning, and I said you, you need to, you and your team need to pick up copies of New Sales Simplified, and I want you to follow Mike's sales story structure. And you know the guy on the other side of the table is like, wait, Mike Weinberg, he's my neighbor. And I was like, what? He, and I didn't even know you were a St. Louis guy, Mike. And so th- that was a huge revelation for me and, and pretty cool to, to hear. So that's fun. You know,
0: I, I've, I've been here almost 30 years and I can't answer the St. Louis question, right? Where'd you go to high school? But my kids can. And I've lost most of my jerk and most of my accent coming from New York, but they both come out occasionally. So we'll see as we get into talking about sales and sales truth, if he what, what, if gets some New York aggression coming out of me today.
2: Awesome. We'll we'll look for that. Yeah, I, I have the same thing. I've, I've I'm 38, and I've now spent half my life in in St. Louis. I grew up in in Milwaukee, but that's the big question in St. Louis is where where did you go to high school? And it kind of places you on the map and. And then people all judge each other and everything based on that. but <laughs> It's pathetic. Let's just, let's just say it is too non-St. Louis. It's pathetic. So Yep. But, but it is true. And I guess my kids will be doing doing the same someday. So awesome. Well, Mike, I read your first book, New Sales Simplified, all the way back in 2014. I went back into my... I'm a Kindle book guy. And, and so I, I went back into my app and looked at when I purchased it. And it was sometime in 2014, which I think was a couple of years after it came out, if that sounds about right. So many of the things resonate. I was kind of on a sales book kick back then. I was reading that. I read, I read "Same Side Selling" by Ian Altman and Jack Quarles, and I remember reading "The Challenger Sale" at the same time. But I, I really, you know, something about New Sales Simplified really stood out to me. And in particular, Chapter Eight of your book, I talk about all the time. and, And the title of that chapter is "Sharpening Your Sales Story." Now, your book is a sales book, obviously, as the title indicates, but. As a huge advocate, me being a marketing guy is a huge advocate for differentiated positioning. I don't think there's a better framework out there that does that helps you write positioning than this chapter of your book. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what the sales story is and why it's so important. Yeah. Well, first, let
0: me just say a big thank you. Those are some super generous comments, especially coming from a marketing guru. So I'm really honored. Chapter 8 is probably the most popular chapter in New Sales Simplified. It's one of my favorite topics, the sales story, or messaging, and it's probably the thing I get asked most to speak or train about. And I, and I get it because your sales story, your message, your pitch, your value prop, call it, call it what you want. In the book, I use a, a term called the power statement where you're collecting a bunch of compelling talking points. What, whatever you call it, your story, it is your most important sales weapon because bits and pieces of your message end up in all of your other sales weaponry your phone calls, your voicemails, your LinkedIn profile, right? PowerPoint slides, positioning statements when you're opening a meeting. If, if you don't have a good story, you're screwed. And unfortunately, most salespeople don't. They're boring. They're self-focused. They get handed a bunch of product or company-centered marketing gobbledygook from someone in the company that likes to write long, flowery statements that's about the company's history or its proprietary processes or its culture. All wonderful things. But very few of those are going are gonna to wake up a prospect and get their attention or help decommoditize you or get differentiated or get noticed. So that's why I'm so big on the story. Aside from being more strategic in your targeting and aside from spending more time selling, actually carving out more time on your calendar to proactively sell, I don't think there's a thing a salesperson, a sales team, a sales leader could do to increase sales and especially sales effectiveness more than sharpening the message. That's it's, it's why it's such an important
2: topic. Yeah. And the thing I love about the way you've structured it is a majority of it is focused on the customer or the prospect, I should say, their their needs, their pains, the things they care about, the challenges they have. And a very small portion of it is focused on what you do to address those things. And we followed your your framework to a T. We wrote a page on our site that's just called Who We Help and How. We followed your framework to a T. And I can't tell you how many times, you know, we, we serve a very niche audience in, in like mid-sized B2B manufacturers. And they read this, people read this and say, you know, I went down this list of, you know, people come to us when they're experiencing fill in the blank and everything's like, yep, 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 yep. And and that's what resonates. It's, you know. What do the people you're trying to reach care about? Because they care about themselves and what they're trying to achieve. Yeah. Even the way you framed it is, I love the way you articulate it better than I do even. there,
0: There's a hope I have. When you do a great job structuring the early part of your story, and what you're unpacking here is in the framework of how I, I suggest crafting our message, the very first part, the most important part, where the power comes from in our power statement is where we articulate the pains we so, pains we remove, the problems we solve the issues we address, the better results we achieve. They don't all need to be negative. Some of them can be framed in the positive about better outcomes, but all of those are customer issue, customer outcome focused. So it's about them because the truth is customers don't really care what we do. They want to know what we're going to do for them, right? So the goal is we're crafting the message, particularly if it's prospecting and you have 10 seconds in a phone call or you know, whatever span of attention you get, someone reading a bullet point or two in your email or as you said, in your case, on your web page, what I want that prospect saying after they read or hear you for even a few seconds is, huh, that's interesting. You help people like me and organizations like mine. I must know more from you. Like you are clearly credible. You're clearly an expert. You attack the problems that I have and create the outcomes that I want. I'm gonna put my guard down and let you tell me more. And that's really the magic. And unfortunately, if you look at most web pages for the typical company, and you go to the about us section, it starts with some bizarre, boring company history chronology that may be really important to the founder or the executives that started the company, and there's some pride, and it's all great. But do your clients really care about your company history? I mean, it's a nice touch, and whether it's made in America, I, I do a lot of work with Mack Trucks and John Deere and Herman Miller, and big manufacturers that are really proud of manufacture stuff in America. And a lot of their dealer sales forces are longtime people, right? They've been there forever selling for decades, working for dealerships that have been in business for a hundred years. So one of their favorite things to say when they're, when they're selling is, oh yeah, you know, we're made in America and every, you know, our dealerships in its fifth generation of family ownership and they're proud. And I get the pride and it sounds good. But if you're a guy running a fleet of trucks and you're struggling with downtime and trying to find drivers and desperate for more fuel economy, hearing that your truck was made in America doesn't help me. Right? So that's where I'm going, hey, why don't you pivot? You can get to made in America and family health later. Because that may that might be meaningful. I'm not saying that's not a potential differentiator, but you can't lead with a differentiator because it could be it could be totally self-focused or not salient. So like if I'm talking to the, the truck people, like what if you started your story by saying, hey, you know what? We're helping a lot of fleets who are struggling to find and keep good drivers, and they're desperate to reduce downtime because it's killing revenue and damaging customer relationships. Well, the truth is 80% of truck fleets have those issues. So if you're talking to a fleet manager who's your prospect, instead of saying, we do this, we do that, we've in our fourth generation of ownership, my truck's made in America, why don't you say, hey, a lot of people like you look to us when they're having trouble finding drivers and they've got to reduce downtime because you know they have those issues. And then all of a sudden, the dynamic changes, right? Now, they're not resisting. Oh, there's another salesperson with a pitch. They're like, hey, that's interesting. You're, You're helping people that have those challenges? I got those challenges. What can you do for me? And then we're on a totally different playing field at that point.
2: Yeah, I don't think you could have said it better. And and regarding that, you kind of hit on it. But regarding that, we've been in business for a hundred years. Message, that's the stuff people care about. Once they believe that you have seen the problems they're experiencing or helped companies achieve the things they're trying to achieve, now their ears are open and they they'll start vetting you. But you need to lead with the things that matter to them. Right. That was perfectly stated. I love how, how you put that together. Yeah, right. You can you can come back with the other pieces
0: of your story to reinforce to differentiate from competition, to make them comfortable, but you can't engage with that. That's right. Because they they don't care what you do and how much you love your company or your product or how smart you are or how
2: long you've been in business unless you can help them. So the order, it's the order that matters. 100% agree. Well, Mike, shifting gears here. I'm going to quote you from New Sales Simplified. You said, "Uh oh, I always get nervous because I, I." Yeah, yeah. Here you go. <laughs> I write in
0: extremes, so I'm always like, "What did I
2: say?" <laughs> yeah, and you wrote it nine years ago too, but I, I imagine it's something you talk about frequently. But actually, I'm going to I'm going to set this up real quick. So, so one of one of my other favorite authors and and people I follow, he's more in the the world of. of Marketing and sales for creative and agency people. I don't know if you know who Blair Enns is. He wrote the Win Without Pitching Manifesto. I'm a huge fan of him, but he always talks about conversations instead of presentations. That's kind of one of, one of his, his key things he focuses on. And, and you said something similar in New Sales Simplified. You wrote, Occasionally, a prospect will invite you to come in and make a presentation. And presentation is one of those words that makes my skin crawl. And I was rereading that section you know, just the other day when I was preparing for this interview with you. And I was just sort of... I found myself vigorously nodding my head because I, I agree with it wholeheartedly. So I was wondering if you could unpack that for us.
0: Yeah. Let's go back to what, where you started. Dialogue versus monologue. And I don't know how this happened. Maybe it's because of tech or tools or PowerPoint or just what customers began to expect because salespeople got good at doing the show up and throw up or spray and pray. But where is it written that an important customer meeting, even if we're near the end of the sales cycle and we're supposed to be pitching and presenting, where is it written that's supposed to be a monologue and that we should be standing at the end of some table or even worse today with COVID and lockdown where we're we're on this internet tool, right? Looking into a camera. And is it just assumed that we should be doing all the talking and not doing discovery and not dialoguing? So I hate the word presentation for about 50 reasons, and I, I articulate all those in, in chapter 13, but mostly because they tend to be premature. The focus tends to be wrong. And they tend to be one-way communication, and they're not as effective as they could be. I mean, the, one of the biggest things is, is premature. When you go in because a customer or a prospect says, hey, we, we're, we're shopping, or why don't you come pitch us? Or, you know, we've heard about you. Come do a capabilities overview, or give us your dog and pony show. Even in your world, right? In the advertising world, that's the norm. Come give us the pitch. We're going to look for a new agency. So we show up and we puke on the people. Here, here's all the stuff we do. Here's our expertise. Here's our talent. Let me show you all these cool sites we built. Here's some, here's our creatives, here's our account management process. But it's it's devoid of, of relevant content because you're guessing what the prospect's issues are. Even if you've done research, you don't really know exactly. So part of my frustration is salespeople that don't do good discovery. They don't push back when the prospect says, hey, come and Come and do your dog and pony show. Like we want to see your demo or whatever it might be. So we go in and we do it. And my argument is, if you go in in presentation mode, there is no way you could be viewed as a value creator, a trusted advisor, a consultant because you're in pitch mode. So you're just a vendor pitching stuff. And if you don't take back control of your sales process and push back and say, you know, I hear you. Here's what might work better. I need a couple of meetings with these key stakeholders, or I need some more time to understand where you're at and what what your situation is in your current state. So that we when we really understand it, then we can put together a presentation for you that'll be relevant. And I even told the story in that chapter of this one agency I was working for in St. Louis, young agency having a lot of success. And the founder called me and said, I'm so excited, Mike, we got this pitch for this giant company. It wants us to come in and pitch them. And I looked at her and I said, Mindy, what are you going to pitch? And she said, all, all of our stuff. I said, why are they talking to you? She said, I don't know, but they're not happy with their agency and they want a new one. And we talked through if they're not willing to meet with you ahead of time, what would happen if you turned this one-hour pitch into a 40-minute a pitch and you started the meeting instead and said, looked at their senior people and said, hey, we brought every good thing we've ever created here and we could present to you for like 14 hours. But to make this meeting more relevant and to really understand if we could help you and if we're a good fit, let's take the first 20 minutes and have you unpack for us why we're sitting here. And what's going on in your world? And why are you looking for an agency? And what types of needs do you have right now? And if you even want to share maybe why you're frustrated or what's not working, if you're okay with that, we, we'd love to hear it. And after you spend this, this early part of the meeting helping us understand where you are and where you're trying to go, we'll create a presentation for you on the fly and we'll pull the end. You get to see us think creatively and we'll do, we'll do our work. And, and then we'll be sharing with you what's relevant to you. So let me ask you a couple of questions about what you're trying to get done. And then you pivot right into discovery, which is what good salespeople do, because you accomplish more selling, I believe, at times with the great questions you ask than when, when, you're, when you're pitching. So I, I went down a couple of paths in my answer. I'm not sure where you wanted me to go, but premature is, is one of the characteristics of presenting that drives me crazy. I'll just go quickly. And the second path is the focus. We talk about our company, we talk about our product, we talk about our people, we talk about our solutions, which is what you think you'd be presenting about. The problem is we never make the connection between our stuff and their stuff. And the reason that in in medicine, you would consider a doctor committing malpractice if they prescribed you a medicine before doing a real diagnosis, examining you, asking questions, right, running whatever tests before they prescribed a medicine or a treatment plan, Similarly, in sales, it would be malpractice if you go in and you present before you do discovery, right? So it's, it's just wrong. If you can't tie what you're presenting to the issues that you understand that they have and how you're going to take them from where they are to where they want to be, then your presentation is not only premature, but the focus is wrong because they don't really care. They don't really care what you guys do. I said that earlier when we talked about messaging. And it's so critical if you're going to win. And I honestly believe you win in the boardroom. By all the preparation work you did before you get to the boardroom, you had more meetings, you made more phone calls, you met with more people, you built consensus, you really probed, you did discover, you understand where they are and where they want to go. So when you come to present, I make the case that one of your key slides is very early on, you put up a slide or you at least verbally say, here's our understanding of your situation. Do we have this right and then the focus in the room is no longer on you and your solution. And, the, and their engineers are sitting there with their arms crossed, all cynical, trying to poke holes in what you're presenting. You start out the presentation, presentation by saying, hey, we've earned the You don't say this, but in your mind, you're going, we've earned the right to make this presentation. Let me tell you what, we've what we now understand about your business and where you're struggling and what you're trying to get done. And you put up four or five points and you look at the senior person in the room and say, hey, are we right here? can you adjust any of these and has anything changed? And would you like to prioritize these for us? And the moment you get into that kind of content, when you're presenting the whole dynamic in the room changes, because now they're like, well, you're different. You're not here pitching at us. You're sitting around this table, working with us, helping us address these issues. And it becomes automatic in their mind that you're the best option, because you're the one who's presenting about what they want and what they need and where they're stuck. Everyone else is coming in and showing great pictures of their buildings and their proprietary processes and bragging about their culture. And you're like, hey, let's get your problem solved. And that's a very different dynamic.
2: Oh my gosh, there was so so much good stuff in there. You know, a couple of things that you said that that really stood out to me. You made a comment, of, something about you know it's about the questions you ask that are, are going to really differentiate you. And I've found that to be so true. You know, when you can come in and ask good questions about them as opposed to just sharing it. And then the other thing you said was. You know, you made the doctor analogy, and that's one that I I use often too. You know, it's it's true with a lot of professional services. A a doctor, an attorney, you can't just go to a solution. I don't know why people expect that in other spaces. They expect it in my world. I I mean, that is that is how marketing agencies have always operated. So you need to separate the discovery and the the learning and and providing strategy from going straight to what's the implementation. Hundred percent agree with you. Yeah, it's it's.
0: We're not we're not paid to show up and throw up and give away free information. And you know, you say in your world, in the agency world, it's it's obviously very prevalent. Well, in the tech world today, and a lot of the sales literature comes from the tech world, right? The folks in the valley in California and people in Boston, and they're writing about how to sell. And and what they forget sometimes is that, like your clients in manufacturing and like many of mine in manufacturing, you know, 95% of the salespeople on this planet are not in high tech but a lot of the literature is for them. And in that world, it's become the norm where the customer has the control and they want you to come in and demo your software and they line you up like you're a circus animal, right? They bring you in one at a time and they sit back and they don't want to give you any info and they just make you present. And then they pick apart your features and your software demo. And I'm like, that's the furthest thing from selling I've ever seen. And it's become the norm. And my coaching is you have to break out of the mold. Like You're not going to win that game playing. Along the if you don't break out and go, what am I doing here? My my friend Keenan's got a book called Gap Selling. It's a really good book. It says a lot of the things that I say in, in his in his own way. And one of the things he he talks about in the tech world is demo. And his his world, his his statement was really blunt. He said, No discovery, no demo. You won't let me talk to your people. That's great. I'm not doing a demo. Go talk to somebody else. And part of what I like about that, because I preach a lot about selling from an abundance mentality and owning your sales process. And you don't just do what the customer says. You're not an order taker. You're not a golden retriever fetching the stick the customer threw across the yard. You don't win deals by scoring obedience points. You win deals by bringing value. So sometimes you need to push back. You gotta tell the customer, I hear you. I get I get what you're saying and this is your process, but here's what we found works best. And I've, I've been shaped by other good authors. Dave Curlin has a book called Baseline Selling about how the rules of baseball apply to sales. The book should be way more popular than it is. It was formative. in some of my early sales thinking, even 10, 15, 20 years ago, I was following some of his stuff before his book came out. Mahan Khalsa's book from 25 years ago called Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play was talking about you having rights as a salesperson. You don't just follow the process that's been dictated to you by the customer. Because the way I say it is. I have two missions as a professional seller. And this is crystal clear. I write about this in an entire chapter of my last book, Sales Truth. You've got two missions. Mission number one is you are obligated by integrity to get the customer the best outcome and the most value. That's what motivates you. That's what keeps you clean, right? Sales is a, is not a dirty profession. Like My goal is to get you the best solution. That's mission number one. Mission number two, I've got to give myself the best chance of winning the deal. So anytime you're more on customers, procurement people, or whoever else involved in leadership at your customer or prospect starts attempting to dictate a process to you that violates mission one or mission two, either following their path is not going to get them the best solution because it's stupid with the way their procurement people have set something up or it doesn't give you the best chance of winning because they're trying to commoditize you and put you in this procurement box. That's when I call timeout. I'm like, no, 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 no. I can't get you what you need and I can't get what I need. I'm not playing and you try to work to push back and level the playing field or unlevel the playing field in your own advantage. And it's amazing how open the prospect tends to be when you have the guts to call them out on their stupid game and say, I can't play that because I can't get you what you need. And you're the only one doing that because the other people are all you know, sheep, right? Just doing what they've been told. And all of a sudden, you look like the person who's confident, who sells from an abundance mentality, who's not desperate, and who knows what you're doing. And I've seen incredibly large companies yield to little tiny suppliers who push back on their process. And it's really fun when that happens. That's really cool. I love the way you described that. Yeah. It's, it's, it, no one wants to talk about this because it's scary. It's a lot easier to do sales training about how to do a presentation or you know let's let's play with some prospecting technique. This is real world, right? You got a real deal. One of the major prospects in the world is telling you, hey, do this RFP. And you're like, I don't know you and I'd love to have your business, but I can't win this just putting numbers in your boxes. And if I spend 80 hours trying to fill out your RFP and I don't even know who the key stakeholders are or how they're going to make your decision, why do I think I'm even going to make it to the next round? But we're so scared, right? Well, what if I don't compete? Then I have no chance. Well, let me ask you this. I always say this to the executive at my client. How many blind RFPs have you won in your life where you weren't in relationship, you didn't help them create the RFP, someone you don't know threw this at you because they had you on a list, you think they probably sent this to 10 people, you have no relationship, you have no knowledge of what's going on. How many times have you spent the 70 hours filling that document out and what's the opportunity cost and what percent of the time do you win those? And their answer is always the same. We've never won one. And I go, well, then why don't we try to do this a little differently? Maybe, Maybe we'll have a chance. So it's just it's a it's a matter of guts and and wisdom and discerning what's the opportunity costs because you can't play every game you got to play and and sometimes at the end and I've had this with clients at the end I will acquiesce if it's a dream prospect and they're not willing to give me an inch even though I've laid down and given it everything thing I can to throw a temper tantrum and say I'm not going to play your game sometimes at the end I shut my mouth and I swallow my pride and we go put the numbers in the boxes because. We tried and we didn't succeed in getting them to change their process. But in Sales Truth, in that chapter, I tell a couple stories of really big companies that did change their process and my clients won their deals. And I'm thinking they won because they pushed back and they reframed the game to give themselves the best chance of winning. So that's my coaching to the listeners. Take a
2: shot at it. I love it. I think it's great. You know, it's it's about, I think it was about seven or eight years ago, I wrote an article on our website. In a, I can remember sitting in Clayton, Missouri, getting my oil change, waiting for... And, and I was kind of furious because we had just lost an, an RFP that I really wanted. And it probably never even got looked at. So I, I sat there and, and just in this, while this was on my mind, I remember sitting there and I just wrote this article called, Why We Won't Answer a Website Design RFP. And then I launched into, this is how it should play out. These are This is... Oh, I'm going to find that article. I can't wait to read that
0: because it's so funny how... The way you're telling the story, even the memory, you have the visceral reaction, how pissed off you are. You're getting your oil change and you're processing this loss. And you're like, because you probably looked at that and thought you're the best solution for them. You, you honestly believe deep inside they're better off working with you, but
2: you didn't get to play the game. I never spoke with them. Never spoke, Never even had a conversation. And yeah, so I launched into you know the, this is the conversation you should be having with a marketing agency. These are the questions you should be asking you asking them, and these are the questions they should be asking you. That piece for uh, you know it's we've kind of let it let it go. It's still alive somewhere. But for for a number of years after that, it ranked first in Google for website design RFP. And I'd have traced, I mean, I'm not kidding, six figures of of revenue to that in multiple years. Well, plus, look at the multiplier effect, too. Imagine
0: the number of people you've helped that you don't even know about that read that, that are getting better solutions today, or
2: the suppliers that are getting deals they deserve because you put that out. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a cool little success story. I'm, I'm glad you you prompted me to <laughs> bring that one back up because I kind of forgot about it. So, Mike, there's a as a marketing guy, one of the big buzzy terms over the last five years or so has been ABM or account based marketing. And I had uh, Sangram Vajre on the podcast earlier this year. If you know who Sangram is, and he, he, I think he's got an awesome perspective on the topic. But I think with most people who are talking about ABM, it's almost become such a cliche statement that. People are using it to describe all, all kinds of things, and most of the time, they're, what they're really just talking about is focused, disciplined selling. You talk about having a finite list of prospects that are very intentionally selected, and so you know probably before that that buzzword of ABM or account-based marketing was even being tossed around a bunch. You, you know you were you were talking plenty about that. So I was just curious if you could talk a little bit about this idea of having a you know being zeroed in on, on some of the best prospects.
0: Yeah, I'm happy to go there because that's where you start. That's the first part of the framework for a successful sales attack is, is naming your strategic targets. But I can't, I can't skip over something you said because it's it's such a pet peeve of mine. It's the and I'm not saying that the the gentleman you just described is this person, but there are so many bandwagon jumpers in my industry, and that's what I call them. They hop from hot topic to hot topic. You know, One day it's social selling, the next day it's ABM, the next day it's this thing. And and it's like this FOMO kicks in. And if you don't rebrand yourself as the expert in this new thing and wrap yourself in this blanket, then you're going to miss something. And I'm always amused because I've been in this business now about 15 years, and I've seen a lot of people come and go with their hobby horses. And I take some pride in declaring that I'm one of the people that helped put the fork in the social selling movement. Hashtag social selling. Like the woman that was known as one of the founders of social selling who named her firm hashtag social selling. She's not in the sales training business anymore. She's gone. And the guy who named himself the pioneer of social selling, right, bragged that he brought social selling to the world, right? He's been out of work like five times in the last five years, regularly online, asking people to hire him. So what I'm trying to say here is be wary of the online experts who have today's fix, with today's hot button thing that tell you everything in sales and marketing has changed. You need today's coolest tool, toy technique, or you're a dinosaur. That's a load of crap being perpetuated by people that have an agenda and something they're trying to sell you. And again, I'm not accusing anyone in particular of that, but the bandwagon thing is very dangerous because the fundamentals are still the fundamentals to your specific question on, on targeting You, can't be serious about being a new business development-focused, strategic, intentional salesperson if you don't have a finite, workable, written list of strategically selected target accounts that you're committed to pursuing. And every word I just said is intentional, and I would encourage listeners, go back 15 seconds and listen to that again. Strategic, finite, written, workable, intentionally selected list of accounts you're committed to pursuing. Because I get really nervous when I talk to a salesperson and I'm like, hey, show me your list. And they open up the CRM and they scroll through like nine pages of 400 accounts. And I'm like, dude, you're not calling on 400 companies. Who are you committed to going after right now? Show me the 30 or the 12 or the 17 or sometimes it's 60. The customers that look, smell, and feel like ideal profile prospects that you're able to do your research and launch your sales weapons and focus like crazy. Because if I argue if you don't have a finite a finite list of accounts you're committed to pursuing, then you're just playing at developing new business. Like it's the first step. And the reality is real sales hunters, when you help them really think and whether they're going into their existing customer database of current accounts and they're identifying those that are most growable because that's a great place to get new businesses, growable existing accounts instead of just over-serving your friends that buy everything from you, go see the difficult customers and only buy a little bit but there's all this upsell and cross sell opportunities. And I know when you're client base, that's a huge thing when you're selling, when you're a manufacturer, right? And you they're buying one or two, they're cherry picking your line, but there's this entire assortment of things you could be selling them, but it, it takes work, right? So what I'm saying is the strategic hunter, when they see a list of ideal profile prospects that have the characteristics Right? They're of the profile. They're the size, the vertical. They're in a location. They have a certain structure. They look like customers who love you and get your value and buy from you. That's a softball down the middle for a sales hunter because you build your story and you build your knowledge and you can call it account-based marketing. You can call it whatever you want. You know that vertical, you know that type of customer, you know the language, you study them, you get to know them. If it's a long sale cycle, you get to really get deep into that account sometimes before you sell them anything. And all of the things I'm articulating here are around focus and intentionality. We're not cold calling the phone book. That's why I hate people that make fun of cold calling because no one's calling the phone book. That's, That's a myth. If you're a professional seller, And you are prospecting against a very small, finite list of strategically selected prospects who look, smell, and feel like people who get your value. That's the furthest thing from cold calling the phone book. So the more research you do and the better you understand that market and the sharper your messaging is, we'll go back to where we started, right? When you can really articulate key bullet points of problems you solve, pains you remove, issues you address, results you achieve, and you build those points into your prospecting weapons and you're going after a known quantity, a type of account, you look like an expert. So that that was a long answer, but that it's it's focus, it's strategy, and it's confidence you're going In the right direction after people who need what you sell. I'm
2: 100% in agreement with you there. You know, there's so many companies I talk to, and the same thing really applies on the marketing front. This idea of focus. I, it's companies that are. Well, we serve 15 different verticals, and they're all important. Okay, well, you can't. You can't. You you try to serve 15 different verticals and and address that through marketing. You're going to spread yourself thin. You're going to accomplish nothing at all, really. Well, let me ask you a question, Joe. Because I, I, I can imagine you have that
0: going on in marketing. I have that with salespeople, and I, I, I see the salesperson say, "Well, I don't, don't want to give up any of these accounts or this focus because what if they want something?" And I always say, "If you're selling everything to everybody, you're selling nothing to nobody. Like you, what you're just you're just hanging out hoping something comes in your lap, but you can't target." Whatever number of verticals you like, what's what's the message and how are you focused? And I mean, if someone calls you back, you don't even know what they were calling about. Like you it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Finite, finite, strategic
2: targeting. That's right. And and you know, I, one thing I, I always emphasize too is just because you are intentionally selecting, you know, I guess in my case as a marketer, a specific vertical or type of customer or something to to pursue it doesn't mean you don't serve other people. Like It means that you are going to channel your energy and you know, your resources into very specific and intentional things, as opposed to spreading yourself thin and, and accomplishing very little. And so I think sometimes that resonates. It's like, okay, I get it. We're, right now, we're focused here. And, it, and when this guy knocks on my door, and it, it's a potentially a good fit, it doesn't mean I'm not going to do business with them. right?
0: Intentionality is a big word that gets ignored a lot today.
2: Mike, you published your most recent sales book, Sales Truth in 2019. It's on the Kindle app on my phone, but I have not yet read it. So I was curious if you could just tell our listeners a little bit about you know, what's Sales Truth about, what inspired you to write it? There's only a couple a couple themes in Sales
0: Truth. And while New Sales Simplified is more of the how-to, this is more of an expose on the sales industry and a real focus on two key topics that we've touched on a little bit. I wrote the book, Yes, What Motivated? I was pissed off. I'm angry at my colleagues in this industry who preach a lot of nonsense to gullible, desperate salespeople, people that say things like, the phone is dead, you're an idiot, you're a Luddite, you're a dinosaur if you pick up the phone. And they quote the challenger sale research, which has been debunked that today's buyer goes 57% through their buying process before engaging a salesperson. That's only true if a lazy reactive salesperson is sitting on their ass doing nothing, waiting for the customer to get through some imaginary buying process that really doesn't exist on paper. And when they get to the 57% mark, then they're going to call you and say, hey, come on in and talk to me. I now have permission to talk to a salesperson. Like the whole concept is stupid. And around that theory, entire sales training methodologies have popped up trying to sell you everything from inbound marketing. And I mean, there, there's a guy in the social selling training world who wrote an article and said, listen, Kylie Jenner, Kylie Jenner. Okay. Like I didn't even know who she really was, right. Of the Kardashian world, right. Kylie Jenner became a billionaire through social media. Can't you see she didn't cold call her away to a billion dollars in net worth social selling works. And I, I look at that and I'm like, you're serious? Like You think a real company is going to hire you as a sales trainer because Kylie Jenner taking half-naked selfies is the role model for a professional manufacturing salesperson to get appointments? Is that going to work? You want to see half-naked pictures of me? I don't think that's going to get you any meetings. I think if I pick up the phone and call people and say, hey, I help a lot of people like you that struggle with A and they're looking to achieve B, should we talk? I'm going to get more meetings than if I post pictures of myself. And then you got the inbound marketing people. That hold up Gary Vaynerchuk, who is really talented, right? And really big. But if you ask in my opinion, Gary V taking selfies of himself, wearing a ski cap in July, dropping F-bombs, is not the role model for your salespeople that and, and your clients, or nor mine. So while it's cool and Gary has a big presence and Kylie Jenner's a billionaire selling makeup, I'm not sure that's the, the plan to for sales success. So so part of the reason I wrote the book is I wanted to. I actually quoted these charlatans, the things they were putting out as sales advice, and said, be careful who you listen to, because the barrier to entry today to be a sales thought leader is a LinkedIn profile and an internet connection. Like you can get a lot of likes saying a lot of stupid things that don't help people. And so part of me was exposing that. That's a small part of the book, but it's the first part because I had to get it off my chest. The, the midsection of the book is where I said, listen to me, people. The most valuable salespeople I'm observing today, and, and I have clients in a bizarre array of industries from big data, to big defense, to big distribution, to dealerships, like it's all over the place. And across the board, whether it's defense or data or or you know industrial distribution, the top salespeople are the ones who create opportunities. They don't just chase or wait. The most valuable salespeople create. So I took six chapters in a row and unpacked what are the keys to being an opportunity creator? Owning your calendar, having the right attitude, having a strategic list, sharpening your message, being committed to prospecting. I mean, there's not a new idea in that whole section. And I just went through some of the best practices of what does it take to really put together a successful sales attack from both an attitude and a and a technical perspective. And then at the end of the book, I profiled some top producing salespeople because I wanted to encourage the sales community that people who are top producers are not freaks of nature and they don't have like superhero powers. They just work really hard and they master the fundamentals and they prepare and they're driven and they're focused and they know their business and they know their customer's business and they know their competitors and they work. And everyone wants the silver bullet or the shortcut or the secret sauce. And I'm like, why don't you work on the fundamentals? Because the very best salespeople that I profiled from a B2C guy that sells cars to a B2B guy, that's the number one financial services guy I've ever seen. And they're, they couldn't be more different in their personalities and, and everything about them except they're both number one for years and years and years and make a gazillion dollars. And I showed on paper what they have in common in terms of drive, creativity, focus on fundamentals. And that's really what the book is. It's it's the truth about what doesn't work and, and the lies in the industry. What does it take to create opportunities? And then who's really winning and why?
2: You talk about so many things that are just timeless principles. You know, technology is going to change, the thought leaders uh, in quotes is is are going to change, but there are a lot of timeless principles in sales that remain true. And and I think you 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 through your experience and keeping yourself sharp and writing about it and speaking about it, you know, it's very clear that you've got a great perspective on the fact that that that's just the truth. Yeah, and it's weird, Joe. I don't. It's it's I'm in an odd position. I didn't
0: expect to be sitting in this chair as the older guy with gray hair. I was younger when I got into this industry. And I said some really bold things early on about fundamentals and basics and don't fall for the sexy, shiny new toy. Well, here I am standing 15 years later going, I guess I was right because I've seen all these other people cycle through and all these fads come and go. And yet my phone keeps ringing from sales teams that are struggling, some really big companies saying, hey, we need some help with fundamentals. And then we go in and we we fix the stuff that matters, just like you go in and fix the marketing things that really matter. And I go in and I play with targeting and messaging and sales call structure and discovery, and and all of a sudden pipelines start getting filled up because putting someone through social selling training isn't filling the funnel, right? Or everybody will be doing it. So it's just I I've just learned over time, like be very weary of the fads. And I'm sure we're going to have Clubhouse as a new thing, right? Club. Everyone is writing about Clubhouse. Someone tagged me in a LinkedIn post to kind of suck me into the conversation. I've tried to stay out of it. And they said, what do you think? What do you think? Is this, should salespeople be on Clubhouse? And I knew it was coming, right? And I said, I don't know. I said, I don't know. But let me tell you what's going to happen in the next few months. There's going to be a new crop of experts that pop up as Clubhouse experts. And they're going to be selling you programs, how to maximize your Clubhouse platform. And some of them are going to try to suck salespeople and sales leaders into this. And I said, I'm going to withhold my judgment But I'm telling you that will happen. And a lot of salespeople that don't want to pick up the phone or do traditional selling are going to think, oh, here's the answer. Social selling didn't work. Inbound didn't do all it needed to do. I'm going to now use Clubhouse because it's sexy and it's new. I don't think it's going to work, but there'll be a few people that make it work. But I I say, let's watch and see. And if some really top producers figure out how to use Clubhouse as as a tool to create a following and drive business and whatever that does get their IP out, good for them. And we'll copy their behavior. But until I see that happening, I'm going to assume it's just the next fad. And when that one ends, because it will end like they all do, I'll be standing here going, hey, salespeople, do you have a target list? Have you sharpened your story? Can you prospect to get a meeting? When you get a meeting, do you do good discovery and flush out objections and define next steps? When you present, is it about the customer or about you? And hey, by the way, let me see your calendar and your pipeline how disciplined are you? And are, do you own your calendar? And do you spend time creating, advancing, and closing opportunities? Which by the way, those are the only three sales verbs that matter, create, advance, and close. Or do you spend time babysitting customers and getting inbox zero? Because that's not going to fill the pipeline and help you be a top producer. And at the end of the day, I keep waiting to find, Joe, the situation that we can't solve with the fundamentals. Because when I run through that list, and I'll just, I'll wrap with this story one of the real big banks in America, happens to be a bank ride bank, so it was intriguing to get this phone call, called me up and said, we love your stuff. We're doing a big virtual selling training initiative. And I get it, it was locked down and people needed help with virtual selling. And I was on the phone call with these executives and this big committee shopping for a virtual selling sales trainer. And I ended up pointing him to my friend Jeb Blunt at the end of the day. And I don't know if they went that way because Jeb's brilliant and he's got a great virtual studio and all that. But I said, before I pitch you on virtual selling training. Can I just ask you some questions? Because I knew the answer. I said, forget COVID. Forget having to sell on, online. Let's just go, but go to your, your typical banker, relationship manager, commercial lending officer, the whole different organization, all the salespeople in this giant bank. I said, let me just ask you some questions. Do they have a strategic list of targets that they're working? No. I said, okay. Do they have compelling messaging that really gets at the issues you address for clients and articulate value? And they said, no, our messaging is not good. I said, can your people prospect? Do they actually initiate contact with growable clients and non-customers? No, we're not really good at prospecting. I said, okay. When they get a meeting, do they do good discovery work? Do they, do they understand how to structure it so they come across like advisors and consultants? No, we're not really running good sales meetings. Okay. How about their calendar? Do they, do they carve out time? Do they time block? Are you measuring pipeline? The way? No, we don't do that. And I pushed back from the table. And I said, and you really think you need virtual selling training? How much, you know, 80% of what we do in sales has not changed. Whether we're looking into a camera and we have to care about the background and, and deal with the unique things with virtual or not, the things I just articulated haven't gone away. So you can dress up your training in virtual selling training. And I would strongly recommend my friend Jeb Blunt's book, Virtual Selling. It's a phenomenal book. And he's doing an amazing job there because there are nuances. And I think some of the in-person selling is never going to come back regardless of herd immunity and vaccinations. And there's just some convenience to to virtual. I'm a fan of in-person, and a lot of that is going to come back, but not all of it. But you get where I'm going with this, Joe, and, and the audience. The basics are still the basics. So don't tell me you need the best virtual tool if you don't have the five or six fundamentals nailed down. Focus on that. I promise you'll get sales lift. Like it works every time. No one ever questions. If you run through that list I just ran through, Will that create more sales? It always creates more sales. So I'll, I'll, that's the best I could say that.
2: Well, that was well said. And I think the people who are, who are getting Clubhouse right right now or are about to, and the people who are getting virtual selling right or whatever it is, the ones who are succeeding with it are succeeding with it probably because they got the fundamentals right and then are using a tool to do those things better, right? It's not because they chose to use this shiny tool. Yeah, it's perfectly
0: stated. That's exactly right. They had the fundamentals and they were good to begin with. Yeah. The tool, the tool didn't
2: make them, the tool helped them expand. Just a tool. That's what it is. So well, Mike, I can't tell you what an honor it is having had the opportunity to talk with you and, and have you on my show here. You know, as as one of the most the authors of one of the most influential books I have read in my career. This was just really exciting for me and and it was a phenomenal conversation. Well, you're really kind.
0: Thank you for the opportunity to visit with your listeners. This was a fun dialogue. I can't wait to share this with my audience as well, because it's the basics. It's the basics. So I wish you and Gorilla76 tons of success, man. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words and the chance to visit with you.
2: Absolutely, Mike. Where can you tell our audience where like the best way to get in touch with you, where they can learn more about what you're doing and your books?
0: Yeah, on social, it's Mike underscore Weinberg, W-E-I-N-B-E-R-G, Mike underscore Weinberg. And on Mikeweinberg.com where you can find my stuff, my blog, and my relatively new Sales Management Simplified podcast.
2: Awesome. Well, I got to check out the podcast. I didn't realize you were podcasting. So that that one's going to be, I'm going to be hitting subscribe later today. Awesome. Well, thank you once again. And as for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of the Manufacturing Executive.